at any point and grab one. Tonight we'll be finishing chapter three from the book The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. It's a tremendous, like I mentioned every week, it's a tremendous book. I highly encourage you to get it. I don't have any more copies of this. I bought out Ollie's, and then you guys bought me out, so we're done. We, if you want one, you can get it on Amazon uh, but, or whatever, christianbook.com. Uh, but it's a really good book, and we really highly, highly uh, recommend it. Quick review, if you look at the fill, I filled in a bunch of blanks for you at the top of your outline uh, or your little handout there. It's not really an outline, it's more of a handout of highlights from the book. Uh, I just give you a few things to think about. He, he talks about obedience in, in this book, and he says that the more and better you know God, the easier it is to trust God, and the more you trust God, the easier it is to obey God. And I think that's true. I think knowledge leads to, to trusting, which leads to obeying. And, and we, we need to exercise our faith so we trust more. And he draws a distinction between trusting and believing. He says, you know, when people don't get on an airplane and fly an airplane uh, because they're scared, it's not because they don't believe that airplanes fly. They see airplanes fly all the time. It's because they don't trust them. And there's a difference in that being willing to put yourself in the airplane makes all the difference. So uh, then we talked about in trusting God, the title of the, of the chapter was Trust in the Lord and Do Good, uh, taken from the Scripture. He says uh, one of the areas, there are two main areas that we need to trust God in. And the first area is in God's sovereignty. And in, as we trust God's sovereignty, um, there is, what we're talking about is God's rule, because the word sovereignty has the word reign in it, it has built on the idea of, of, being, of God's reign, God's, God's um, in fact, the title, the um, quotes here, he says, to be sovereign means to be supreme, unlimited, and totally independent of any other influence. Uh, God alone has this power. We read some of that uh, last week. Then we, I think this is where he left off. The sovereignty of God, simply stated, is his undisputed authority and rule over every aspect of his creation. So it's undisputed, and it's over every aspect. So no, no one, as Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel chapter 4, no one can say to God, what are you doing? Or stay his hand, uh, prevent him. God is the unrivaled king of all. And uh, I've got that from a book by Leighton Talbert called Not By Chance, a very good uh, quote there. Uh, when we talk about God's sovereignty, we're talking about Him, Him reigning. So what are the domains of God's sovereignty? This, again, is review. Last week we talked about His domains of sovereignty. He has domain over creation, domain over preservation, domain over governments, Proverbs 21.1 and Daniel 2 and Daniel 4, individual lives and destinies, and even small events. When you recognize God's sovereignty, God's power, so there's two parts to this. You say God's power, God's ability, this is huge. Can God do what He says He can do? Can God actually accomplish anything is the question. Because, you know, I can make a promise to you, but I may not follow through because I may be limited. I may say, I'll see you at three o'clock, and then there's a huge traffic jam, and I can't get out of my car and fly, right? I am just stuck. I am unable to go somewhere. I, I tried, but my, there were things outside of my control that limited me. God's not like that. God is sovereign over all these different areas, God is sovereign. And so we need to recognize God's sovereignty, and this helps in our, our, our conflicts because we need to recognize God's sovereignty even in our, um, uh, in our, our painful events. 
So a couple things here that we talk about, understanding God's, the role of God's sovereignty in unjust or, or painful events. This is really important when we get to handling it when people have mistreated us, okay? Uh, for a couple things. Can someone read James 1, 13 and 14? I need some helpers today to read some passages of Scripture. So go ahead, uh, Dan, and then look ahead, if you would, and, and grab one of the verses when we come to you. James 1, uh, 13 and 14. And say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Okay, good. And then first John one five, does anybody have that verse? Yes, Cassie. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Okay, so we can say with, a, with absolute certainty from the Scripture, God, the Bible tells us that God is not the author of sin. So although God is sovereign, He is not the author of sin. God is supreme. That does not mean that He causes people to sin. He is not the author of sin. We see that no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. God does not tempt anyone with evil. He doesn't tempt anyone. God is in him is light. There is no darkness at all. Secondly, who can read Ezekiel 33, 11? Okay, Matt. Yeah, God says here, God never takes pleasure in what is hurtful. Okay, so as God is powerful, we're talking about this side of God's sovereignty, this side, or this side of God's character, God's sovereignty and His power. Uh, we need to recognize His sovereignty even in painful events, even in unjust events, yet we recognize that God is not the author of sin, God does not take pleasure in what is hurtful. And Acts 2.23, does anybody have that verse? Acts 2, yes ma'am. So God here, or, or this is in the message where uh, Peter is, is preaching about the crucifixion of Jesus, and notice how he says that. He says, him, speaking of Jesus, whom you, who, who determined, oh, the divine, how does it say it, the determined foreknowledge of God? Yes, determined purpose and foreknowledge. According to the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you took, and so he then points his finger back at them and says, yes, this is all in God's plan, yet you're the ones who did this. And so what, uh, what uh, Ken Sandy points out is that allowing evil is not the same as causing it. Allowing people to be evil as God allowed them is not the same as causing evil. And at the right time, God administers justice on the wicked. Psalm 33, 10 and 11. Does anybody have that? Who has Psalm 33? We got that somewhere. Yeah, so, so God is, God's long-suffering and not judging sin immediately does not mean He approves of it. We see this in Romans chapter 2 as well. God, do you, He says, oh man, do you mistake the, the mercy of God for approval, basically, is, the, is the, one of the points of, of, of Romans chapter 2. So at the right time, what God does is He brings justice on the wicked. And sovereignty, though, does not release us from personal responsibility for our actions. Romans, let's do Matthew 12 first. I'm skipping some verses here, but Matthew 12, 36. Matthew 12, 36. 
Who's got the yeah, Matt? But I say to you that every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. Okay. Personal responsibility. There is this mistaken idea. Now, do I understand how all this works? No. But there is this mistaken idea among some Christians that the fact that God is sovereign means that I am not able to make decisions, that everything I do has, is, is completely like I'm boxed in. Like if I sin, well, it just must have been God wanting me to sin. Oh, well. I guess that's just how it went. How it went. I mean, I guess I was meant to do that because God's sovereign, so I sinned. That's not, God says, no, I will hold you accountable for that. God can still be sovereign, and you can still make choices to sin. And there's one more verse here, uh, Romans 14, 12. Yes, sir. Brian? So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. We are responsible personally for how you handle your conflict. You cannot pass this off to anyone. You must steward, we talked about this very beginning, you must steward the conflict God has given you towards righteousness. So this is uh, very important. Uh, lastly, on page 62, he tells us nothing in our lives happens by chance. Nothing in our lives happens by chance. God was not sleeping when this happened to you. If you have conflict in your life, sometimes people feel like God was gone. But you have to ask yourself two questions. Do you believe first in the power of God? Do you believe God is actually powerful to do what he promises he will do? You should say absolutely yes. There's a second aspect of God's character that often gets challenged in these moments, and that has to do with God's goodness. And, and, and usually people struggle with one of these or the other. I will say that in talking to people and working with people for as long as I have, um, I think most of the time when we work through discipleship with someone and they're struggling through trusting God, it normally divides into one of these two categories. Either they think, yeah, I think God is powerful, but I just don't think he, is, he likes me very much. Like, I think he's got it out for me. Like, look at my life. My life is terrible. All these bad things have happened to me. I think God has it out for me. I think God is angry with me. I think God is picking on me, right? It's that line from Fiddler on the Roof where he says, Lord, I know we're your chosen people, but every once in a while, can you choose to pick on somebody else? Right? Okay, so there's the people who say, I don't, I think God's picking on me, but they're also, they're the other side of people who say, I think God's gone. I think God's absent. I don't think God's powerful at all. I think God doesn't know I'm here. So you probably, if you're honest with yourself, will find that you struggle with one area or the other. So in the second part about talking about trusting God, we, take, we, we will look at God's goodness. God's goodness does not mean that He will insulate us from all suffering. Rather, it means that He will be with us in our suffering and accomplish good through it. Those are your two planks. In our suffering. Isaiah 42, 2 and 3. Yes, Jimmy. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. So think about what he's saying there. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you walk through the fires, you will not be consumed. I will be with you in your trouble, 
I will not always take you out of trouble. Think about even the examples of Daniel in the, in the fiery furnace. God doesn't like rescue him from going through the fiery furnace. He's with him in the fiery furnace. Right? He preserves him. That's very often what we find. So, so you should expect God to, and when we say God is good, that does not mean that God will keep you from ever experiencing hardship. Because his idea of what will bring, what is good for you is not, may not be the same as what you think. So flip the page over. I want you to see ways that God uses trials and is still good. How can God use trials and be good? Well, there are several ways he does this. Uh, John chapter 9. Can we all turn there for a second? I want you to see this passage of scripture and, and why this is listed here. John chapter 9 is a story about Jesus and the man born blind. Um, look at John chapter 9, starting in verse 1. It says, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? What is their assumption? What's the disciples' assumption about this man being born blind? Blindness as a result of sin? I heard something else. It's her, okay, it came from, yeah, it's hereditary. It came from his parents, okay. That, that somehow someone else's sin, maybe his parents did something wrong, or he had done something wrong, that there's a retributive uh, kind of idea here that it is, if you do bad stuff, you're going to have bad stuff happen to you. And, and people today call that karma. Right? It's a very Eastern idea that if you, or even the idea of, uh, in the East, um, of, uh, reincarnation, you know, if you, if you were born into this life as a lowly servant, well, you must have been really bad in your, or as a, you know, in your last life, you must have been really bad. But if you were born into a rich family, you must have been very good. So this idea of all these things that is somehow dependent on you, how did Jesus respond? This is obviously something wrong with this man. He's blind. It's better to not be blind than to be blind. So he says, Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sin, but, but what is he, what's the answer? Why was this man born blind? Look at the second half of that verse. What does it say? That the works of God should be revealed in him. So God was going to do works through this blind man that he would not have been able to do otherwise, in a sense. That God, that God uses the blind man to demonstrate his his compassion, his glory, in this sense. And he says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, the night is coming, when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And so he's saying, like this man can't see, I am the light of the world. We're going to open his eyes and demonstrate the glory of God. So the first point there is to bring glory to himself by displaying his goodness, his power, and his faithfulness. John chapter 11, we also see this with the raising of Lazarus. Right? Jesus hears about Lazarus' sickness and does not come immediately to Bethany. And when he shows up, what do, what do uh, Lazarus' sisters say? If you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. He would have lived. And then Jesus wept. He, he, ought, he feels compassion for them. It's not like he's being callous. But, then, but he waits because there's... What's his greater? To, to raise a man who's sick from the bed or to raise a man who's dead from the tomb? And so Jesus waits until he is dead and has been buried, and he's in the tomb for four days, and then he raises him, Lazarus, come forth, and he comes out of the tomb. He does a tremendous miracle there to bring glory to himself, right? 
So God uses trials to bring glory to himself, to, to help us to give glory to God in ways that would not be uh, possible otherwise. Secondly, to teach us how to minister to others. First, Second Corinthians, turn there. Uh, these are tremendous passages here. Turn to Second Corinthians chapter 1. can't tell you how many times I've read this passage, memorized this passage, given it to other people to memorize, uh, talked about it with people. And, and some people think this is trite. I've heard somebody say, don't tell me the reason I'm going through this is to help somebody else. Why? Why wouldn't I tell you that? That's what the Bible says. God says that one of the reasons you're going through a hardship is so you can take the same comfort that God gives to you and turn around and give to somebody else. I try not to be callous when I say it. I think it may have been the problem. Maybe I was just callous. I mean, maybe I wasn't sensitive enough when I was saying it, whatever the case. But I want you to look at this, and I want you to follow what's happening in verse 3. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all what? Who does what? Okay, so we have God who comforts us in our affliction. So that we may be able to comfort others with what? With the same comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. See, it goes down then back up. Do you see that? God comforts us in all of our afflictions so we may be able to comfort others with the same comfort that we ourselves receive from God. So God comforts us and we just pass along that same comfort to other people. And that's part of the reason you're going through a trial. And don't shortchange that. Don't say, well, uh, this is all about me. It's not all about you. God is using you and the trial he's given you to help you. So when you go, when someone else experiences that, you have some awareness and empathy for what they're going through. I can tell you when I've gone through hard things, I have much more empathy for people than when I haven't. I mean, I, it's, it's hard. I, uh, it, it's hard when you're trying to understand what someone's gone through and you've never, you've never gone even close to that before. And, and those, some of you have been there before and you've had friends or, or loved ones who've gone through a hardship. But then when you have it, I still remember when, um, uh, uh, you know, when I was a pastor, we visit people in the hospital all the time. And it's just what I, it's part of what we do. And if you're in the hospital and I haven't visited you, I'm very sorry. But I try to visit people in the hospital. When they're in the hospital, we try to go by and we try to say hello. And in the back of my mind, for the first like four or five years of, of my ministry, I always thought to myself, what, what good is this really? Like, what am I really doing? I'm just, I'm coming in. They're not comfortable. They're not really even, ha they're like half dressed. You know, people are, are, are like, oh, I got stuff hooked up to them. They look sometimes really rough. Sometimes they're happy to see me. Sometimes they don't look like, am I really doing anything good? And then I remember we had Nelson, our first child. And I'm sitting there in the hospital with my wife. We just had a baby. She, you know, we're going through this whole thing. You're learning all that stuff. You remember how that is. And some, and, and we had at the time, Gary Ledbetter was here. Remember Gary? Gary's uh, back in Rock Hill. But at the time he was in, um, uh, he came to Rock Hill from Columbia. And then he went to Whiteville for a while. But he was here. And he showed up in our hospital room. And I felt like a million bucks. I was like, oh, this is amazing. It's so good to see somebody from the outside world. Like, there's stuff still happening out there, <laughs> you know, even though it felt like. And, and it's like when I went through that, then now when I go visit people, I, having been in the hospital, having my kids have been in the hospital sometimes with good things, you know, with births, my wife and I have been through several of those, but also when kids have not been feeling well, you know what that feels like. 
And you know what God, how God comforted you, and you can pass along that comfort. Don't ever discount that. Uh, thirdly, and this is also important, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. We're right there. Um, look at verse 9. He says, yes, we have the sentence of death in ourselves. He's talking about the struggles they went through. And then the, word, the word, next word is that. You see that? It gives you a reason why. He says, we have the sentence of death in ourselves that, the purpose, we should not, what? Trust in ourselves, but trust in God who raises the dead. One of the other reasons that God brings you through trials is to teach you to rely more on him. That's your blank there, to teach you to rely more on him. And then also, Psalm 119 teaches us that sometimes, you know, our suffering is a result of our sin. Can you remember a time when your suffering is a result of your sin? When you did something really stupid and you're having to pay for it. And I think all of us could think of one or two events where that's the case, where our sin has caused suffering. Uh, whether it's a relationship problem or whether it's a um, financial suffering or whether it's a physical problem, doing something you should not have been doing in uh, one of my brothers, I remember he, um, he, was, uh, he wanted to ride his bike uh, from the wilds to Greenville, which is in North Carolina to South Carolina. It was something that a lot of the guys would do at the time when we were at the wilds. Because uh, you had a road bike, and you could ride that, and it was all downhill, so it really wasn't that bad. But it's still a long way. And, um, and would you know it that he had asked my parents whether or not he could do this, and my parents said, no, you can't do that. You're not an experienced enough bicyclist to be riding on the road, on those mountain roads from the wilds to Greenville. Well, he did it anyway. And he wrecked his bike, got a flat tire, wrecked his bike, and hurt himself on the way down the mountain. Now, we laugh really hard at him for that. We made fun of him for that. But it really kind of, really kind of made him like, upset that he had done this, and I think it really helped him realize what he had done, because he was embarrassing. Like, he thought he could get away with it. You know, it wouldn't it be great to show up in grief and be like, hey, Mom, you said I couldn't, but hey, I did it, and look how good it was. But to do it and to fail and to realize that actually he had disobeyed. Like, I think, you know how that happens to all of us? So we think about it also can show us our need for repentance. And then Romans 8, 28 and 29, really familiar verse. Can somebody read that for us? Anybody got that? Romans 8, 28 and 29. Why does God allow trials sometimes in our life? Anybody got that one? Okay, okay, Tony. Yeah. We know that all things work together for good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and yeah, he, he, he says here to be conformed to the image of his... God predestined us to be conformed. God's goal for us is to be conformed to the image of his Son. So he conforms us to the image of Christ through our trials. So as we, as we get to the end of this chapter, we talk about trusting God. What does it mean if we trust the power of God and the goodness of God? God's good. What God is doing in our trials does not mean... When we experience trials, let me put it this way does not mean that God has lost power, he's lost control, 
or that he's decided he doesn't like us anymore and that he's wanted to, to put his thumb on us and push us into the dirt. Neither one of these uh, is correct. We should trust in the power of God. We should trust in the goodness of God. And I have here from the book here, he says, trusting God means that in spite of our questions, doubts, and fears, we draw on his grace and continue to believe that he is loving, that he is in control, and that he always is working for our good. That's what trusting God really means. That despite your questions, despite your doubts and your fears, you believe that He is loving, that He is in control, He's always working for our good. Let's look at some of these examples of people in the Bible who trusted God. How did these people have to trust God? Job, how did he have to trust God? And what, what was his... Talk to me. You know these stories. He suffered tremendously, and he didn't hear from God for a long time. But end of Job, he confesses God. Job 42, 2 and 3, right? He confesses God. How about Joseph? What do we see in Joseph's story? How did he trust God? He endured. Okay, he endured a lot of suffering, a lot of pain, a lot of betrayal. Think about betrayal of his brothers, right? What does he say in Genesis 50, 19 through 21? He says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, right? So he saw God's good hand even in his brother's wicked behavior, right? David is a good example. A psalmist, he talks about trusting the Lord even though the wicked prosper. How about, um, how about Acts? Let's turn to, I'm sorry, Peter in Acts chapter 4. Right? Acts chapter 4, verse 24. We have um, Peter here preaching. He says, uh, let's see here. In talking about the, I want you to think about Peter here from where, as the one who observed the death of Christ on the cross and also betrayed Christ, remember, three times. And then I want you to read what in his sermon, what he says, okay? He says in verse 27, or I'm sorry, verse 24, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth. Here he is. Uh, and see, and all that has been them who by the mouth of your servant David has said, why do the nations rage? Then verse 27, for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So he recognized their wickedness, and yet he trusted in God's, he saw purpose in the death of Christ. He saw God's hand at work. In fact, if you go all the way to Acts 5, 41, five, probably I turned one page in my Bible, he says that the, he, they also suffered all this, uh, and he says he departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. So Peter saw God's goodness in suffering there. There's even a couple examples that the book gives us of historical examples. People like Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, think about their suffering, taking the gospel to the Auk Indians. Think about uh, Joni Erickson Tata, right? She, she uh, had this terrible accident when she was very young, was confined to wheelchair, and still has a tremendous ministry, uh, all over global ministry, writing ministry and speaking ministry to people. Um, pe- these are people who trusted in the goodness of God even when 
their experiences made that challenging. Um, any comments or questions so far about, about how we should learn to trust God through our, through our, um, uh, our circumstances, how we should learn to trust God through our conflicts? And can you see how important it is to trust God and do good when you have conflict in your life, not to see it as something that is out of God's control or out of God's goodness? Yeah. I think we need to juxtaposition trusting God versus trusting ourselves. Um, and, and an example would be, for instance, um, Carly is really good at decorating, and so she's going to do something, and I think well, that's not going to look good. <laughs> I'm wrong, and she's right. There's <laughs> no question about it. And she's done with it, it looks good. And I trust her to make that decision. So if I see something and I say that God's not being good or God's not powerful, I need to realize that it's not God that's wrong, it's me. That's, that's a really great illustration. I love that. He, his wife is a tremendous decorator. She's done tremendous work here at the church with Christmas decorations. We've seen her a lot around this week. And, and, and that's a great example. Like, does this look good? You know, I would much, I would trust your wife over I would I trust you for that, right? Because I should, and I should. And, and there are many things like that, right? When we, um, when uh, I, I've given this illustration before, but when I was a teenager, I had a bunch of friends on my baseball team who were living a very worldly lives, and it seemed like they were having a lot of fun and getting away with it. And I remember, I remember having these conversations and thinking, thinking, you know, I, I know that the Bible says this is wrong, like you're not supposed to be going to the mall and shoplifting, and you're not supposed to be drinking and, and, you know, and doing all these things like they're doing. I know you're not supposed to be like acting like this, but it sure looks like they're having a good time and like that they're getting away with it and that, why, you know, they seem to be doing okay, but it's amazing even in my short life to see how God has you know, in, in such a short time, the, the consequences for their behavior has become evident for many of them. It's been difficult to see their lives. Uh, they've not turned to Christ, and their lives have become a wreck because of these same behaviors. And, and at the time, it's very difficult, right? It's difficult to trust. It's like, man, it, from my perspective, it looks like they're doing okay. But from God's perspective, He's like, oh, if you only saw the whole picture, right? And the same thing here. You know, we, we are so limited to trust God's goodness and God's... What I'm trying to draw here is that we need to trust both God's power and His goodness, right? Trust that God is powerful enough and trust that He's good. Great comment. Anybody else? Anybody else have a thought or question or anything you want to poke at for a couple minutes? Yeah, Matt. We need to trust in His power and His goodness even when it doesn't seem like there's the power or it doesn't seem like the goodness is there because that's all just emotion and emotions can deceive Right. Emotions can deceive, and we need to, uh, as we often say around here, you need to talk to yourself, not listen to yourself, right? Uh, the Psalms have these, Psalm, you know, and, and it says, oh my, he often says, oh my soul, right? He speaks to himself. He says, uh, why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. This speaking to self rather than just listening to yourself. Yeah, when these things happen, I recognize that your emotions often that get the better of you of that. Did you have a follow-up? You look like you were going to say something. Nope. Okay. Anybody else comments or thoughts? Yeah. I had a lady stop me in the grocery store about two years ago and tell me that God wanted to heal me. Oh. And I said, well, he already has. And she said, well, you walk with a limp. I said, I know. I have cerebral palsy, but I'd rather have cerebral palsy 
and go through life with a lamp see a sinner destined for hell. Oh, yeah. And she said, well, God still wants to heal you. You just don't have enough faith. And I said, oh, but I do. <laughs> yeah, isn't it amazing that um, people sometimes think that I mean, that, that, the way, that God's answer to everything is escape. I mean, even when we pray, I, I have to often uh, guard my heart because we pray for people and they're going through hard times, whether it's financial trouble or health problems, and you think, well, Lord, help them to get better. Help them to solve this problem. And that's how I often think. But sometimes what we ought to be praying is, Lord, help them to know you through this trial. Let me close with this one um, anecdote, and we'll be finished. I was listening to a, a lady give a, a little testimony um, one time as she had gone through um, she had gone through a very serious uh, life-threatening uh, disease, and she ended up coming out okay. Uh, I, I don't I don't remember what it was, but what she said was she said I I drew so close to God because death became very real to me. I drew so close to God, I felt like I knew God better than I ever had. And she said, as she was coming out, I think it might have been cancer, it was chemotherapy or something. As she was coming out and it became obvious that she was going to survive and obvious that she was going to live a long life after this, she said, I actually worried that I would fall away from being close to God because I was so close to Him that I, I actually worried about that. She said, now that God's been good and I've learned, I've taken my lessons through this, but she learned that through her trial, I think that's a sweet way of thinking about hardship, that the point of the hardship is not to get out of it, it's to see what God are you, what are you doing through this hardship to draw me closer to yourself? What are you making of me in this? And, and when we go through conflict, it's helpful not to be ejecting all the time, to think I've just got to get out of this, I've got to eject from the situation or solve the problem. It needs to be resolved in a way that honors God and, and glorifies him and works on my heart as well. Okay? Yeah. I'll just share real quick. Go ahead. Um, some of you may know this and some of you not, but mom had lung cancer about 10 years ago. Yeah. And um, when she first found out, she said, you know, she thought about it because it was bad. It was a bad diagnosis. And um, she said, I realized, though, that whether I live, you know, and have more time with my family, which would be a blessing, or if, if it kills me, then I'll be in heaven. And either way, it's a win-win. Mm. She just said, you know, she just really drew close to the Lord, which was so comforting for us and such a blessing. But, um, yeah, it really drew her near and changed her outlook. Yeah, and, and not everybody responds that way. I've talked to so many people who get very angry at God. And I, I think what I'm cautioning us against is when the diagnosis comes or when that happens, uh, if you get angry at God, what does it reveal about your heart? What it reveals is that you really don't see your trial as a way of honoring, glorifying God. You're seeing, you, you like God when He's doing good, when He's your piggy bank, when He's benefiting you, but when He's, when he's giving you a trial and wanting, then you rebel. And I think that's very hard to say. It's very hard to take as, as people. But when we respond that way, when we respond the wrong way, I think it reveals something deeply about um, my heart, how selfish I am. Uh, with that. But let's close the prayer. Hopefully, uh, this is encouraging you. Next week, we'll talk about, we'll pick up on chapter four. We're starting to get a little more practical things into how to help with the different kinds of conflict and when to decide when to actually push forward and resolve a conflict and when to let something go. So we'll talk about that next week. Father, we ask you to give us grace 
as we move forward. I pray, God, you'd help us to see our circumstances as you see them. Uh, and I pray, God, that you'd help us to, to use the grace and comfort you give us uh, as we minister to others. And I pray, God, that, that uh, you would help us to be conflict resolvers, to be peacemakers, to be people who uh, have experienced the grace of God in our lives and can then use this as a, as a conduit to others and, and to spread your grace um, around. And when we go through hardship, God, I pray we would learn about you and love you and draw close to you through them. Thank you, Lord, for the time we've had